Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. Before I begin today's episode, I will say that this was by far the most difficult episode to research and write. It's a story I've wanted to tell for a while, but the amount of misinformation about this crime makes it extremely frustrating to put together a factual account of what happened. And as we'll talk about, the controversies surrounding this case do more to shift attention away from the victims and the suspects than I've ever seen before. But before we get into the case, let's discuss the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Haunted houses, real or fictional, draw millions of visitors during the month of October across the United States. While the commercialized versions welcome paying customers to experience jump scares, screams, and a few laughs, there are some houses that prove much less friendly. Most towns have a spooky house or two. Sometimes it's the abandoned residence of a grisly murder, or it could just be a house occupied by someone who has other priorities than keeping up the yard and exterior of their home. Teenagers have long shared an affinity for these houses. The abandoned ones often are the sites of parties, and the occupied ones are filled with rumors and urban legends. What teenagers often don't take into account is the privacy of the person living in the house. In Ohio in 2006, the frustration with trespassers led one middle-aged man to start shooting at a group of teens who decided to test their bravery by either ringing the doorbell or walking into the yard of a supposedly haunted house. Two teenage girls walked on the property, but when the driver of the car they were in started honking the horn, the girls ran and jumped into the car as sounds like fireworks filled the air. The car did one lap of the neighborhood, and while passing in front of the house again, a single bullet entered the car and struck 17-year-old Rachel Berenzinski in the head. While the damage was devastating, Rachel survived her ordeal, and many considered her recovery a miracle. When asked, one neurosurgeon stated that roughly 90% of gunshot wounds to the head are fatal. And while the location of the wound and the size and power of the bullet are extremely important in the survivability, so are factors such as youth and early medical intervention. The crime this episode focuses on is not well known for it containing a famous victim or suspect, but it is well known for the investigation itself and the massive amount of misinformation that has been spread. This is the case of Heather Kwan and Ryan Waller. Again, I will preface this episode by saying there is a lot of disinformation about this case on the internet, and it was by far the most difficult episode I've ever had to research and write. I have scoured every bit of information I can find about this case, and I will present what I believe are the facts, and in situations where something is fiercely contested, I'll do my best to at least offer the alternate option as well. What is most sad about this is at the core of the case, this is a heinous and terrible crime committed by two poor excuses for human beings, and in this case it's a father and son duo. 
Lost amongst all the controversy around this case is the fact that two people would ultimately lose their life for either a minor altercation or $1,000 or so worth of stuff. The case of Heather Kwan and Ryan Waller started with a welfare check that was called in by Ryan's family on Christmas evening of 2006. Ryan and Heather were expected to attend a Christmas dinner function with Ryan's family that evening, but a pre-dinner call to Ryan went unanswered, and after the young couple failed to show up to dinner, Ryan's parents drove to his house to check on their son and his girlfriend. After not receiving a response at the front door, they contacted Phoenix, Arizona police to do a welfare check on the residents. This is where the timeline starts to get contested. According to some sources, it was around three hours before Phoenix PD arrived at the house. This is not uncommon, albeit unacceptable, in large urban departments. Officers attempted to make contact and they noticed what appeared to be someone sleeping on the couch, but they couldn't get their attention. Again, there is a lot of different sources out there saying different things, but some say Phoenix PD decided to get a search warrant for the home and left the house and returned with a warrant three hours later. While Phoenix PD was away getting a search warrant, a roommate of the young couple named Alicia arrived at the house and walked up to her room not noticing anything out of the ordinary and thinking Heather was sleeping on the couch. So I am going to do a lot of these sidebars throughout this episode just because in writing this episode, literally I've mentioned before in cases where every once in a while I'll come across some conflicting information. And it might be something as minor as the color of a vehicle or or who said a certain quote. And so oftentimes I'll find a dozen articles about the case. And in some cases, it's literally six will say one thing, six will say the other. Sometimes it's ten say one thing and two say the other. And so I try to always go with the majority. And in some of the cases, I'll just mention that it's pretty much split 50 50 with the uh, differing information but in this case literally there's probably 20 30 different articles out there in regards to this case and there are at least a dozen different stories about how this all went down and it's going to be different timelines different motives different past relationships between the parties involved i mean there is pretty much every possible part of the case for there to be different information on there is so that's what made this so difficult to write is because i don't like reporting on false information or unverified information so even the story about how the family came to contact the police is up for debate on the internet Uh, so the story that i told about the police arriving three hours late of them removing themselves from the home to get a search warrant that appears in a couple different articles there's also articles that completely skip over how police eventually make contact and some of this isn't going to matter and some of it might be fictionalized just to make the police department look worse so that's why i'm gonna do a few of these sidebars after i talk about certain aspects of this case just to make sure that people understand that this might not be the full true story. There's a lot of details that are very, very, very muddy on this case. And I will always fall back to there are certain parts of this case that are just undeniable. So when I go into summarize, basically what we do have is 
we know for a fact that Ryan and Heather were supposed to go to Ryan's parents' house for Christmas dinner. They did not arrive, which prompted concern from Ryan's parents. And this is naturally so. I mean, there's dinners that people sometimes forget about. You, the other things come up, schedules get crazy, work shifts get changed, whatever it might be. Christmas dinner with a family is not something that is forgotten about. It's something that's usually set in stone well in advance. Uh, it's obviously Christmas Day. Most people aren't working. Uh, so it's it's not something that you're just going to kind of forget, like, hey, which day is it? Oh, yeah, shoot, we we're supposed to go to my parents for dinner tonight. It's, it's definitely something that is going to cause alarm when somebody doesn't show up. So, again, let's kind of skip over some of the details to the point that there is going to be a welfare check that will be called in on. And there is going to be evidence in several of the articles that during this welfare check, police see Heather Kwan laying on the couch uh, through like a window. And we've talked about these before, these welfare checks. Police have no idea what's going on inside this residence. And I did hundreds of these welfare checks during my career as a police officer. And only the smallest, smallest fraction of those welfare checks ended with something involving death or a criminal situation going on. Most of them were miscommunications. There's a lot of times that somebody didn't charge their cell phone. In some cases, already talking on the phone with somebody else for hours, and that's why the other person couldn't get through. There's people who thought they called in sick to work and somehow that message didn't get to their boss. There's a, a ton of different reasons why some of these check welfares end up being unfounded. But in some rare circumstances, when you do these check welfares and you don't get an answer at the door, if windows are open, blinds are drawn, you can see into the house, sometimes you're going to see something that doesn't look quite right. And this is why I question this story is if I was on a situation where I'm trying to do a welfare check and there's somebody sleeping on a couch and after a lot of attempts to get their attention, banging on the door, striking the door, there's there's a certain way that I used to kick doors that literally, especially in apartment complexes, I would have people all the way down the hallway open up their door to see what was going on. And I, I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I was trying to make sure that if there was somebody in that apartment listening to loud music, had headphones on, whatever it might be, that they would come to the door so I could clear up the fact that they're okay. And so there's definitely ways to to be so loud that somebody, whether they're sleeping or, or maybe in, in a light phase of passed out from alcohol, would stir, or at least a lot of the times I would be knocking on the door and then my partner would be looking through a window to see, hey, does that person roll over? Because if they roll over and cover their head with like, a throw pillow on the couch they just don't want to come to the door they're fine possibly drunk but they just don't want to come to the door but if they don't move at all as i'm making a ton of noise i'm starting to think medical emergency or you know something happened to this person i would not be retreating from that home for three hours to go get a search warrant to come to the house because a i mean a search warrant you're going to need probable cause to get into that house just not hearing from somebody usually doesn't qualify as probable cause and part of the exemptions to a search warrant 
are exigent circumstances. So if you can later say, hey, I didn't know what was going on inside the house, but I thought if I didn't enter that house right then and there, somebody could be suffering a medical emergency, you have the right as a law enforcement official in America to gain entry to a house if you can justify it through exigent circumstances. Again, there's a lot of parts of this story that don't make sense. To me, it's possible that they're fictionalized to create a worse picture about what happened here. So while I kind of try to paint the picture based on what some of the stuff has said, I am going to go back and dive a little deeper into some of this stuff, explain how I'm seeing things, and ultimately, some of these details don't matter. What we're going to eventually have is the Phoenix PD at the door to this residence, and in a final attempt to get somebody to come to the door, they're going to knock another time, and Ryan Waller, who is the son of the people who called in the check welfare, is going to come to the door and meet police. And this is where the story completely falls apart for me. When Ryan answered the door, he had clear injuries to his head. It looked like he was on the losing end of a boxing match with a severely black eye and a swollen face. Officers immediately checked on Heather Kwan, and the 21-year-old female was found to be dead from a gunshot wound to the head. So from initial appearances, it looked as if, he th as if Heather and Ryan had been involved in some sort of a fight, and Ryan shot and killed Heather. Ryan was taken into custody and was asked several questions, but it was very clear that he had struggles to follow along with the questioning and he offered incoherent answers. Alicia, the roommate, was also questioned, but knew very little about what happened to her roommates, and I'm guessing she was gone for the holidays. So again, what bothered me most about this case is this is not a remote cabin in the woods with nobody else around. There are going to be a lot of eyewitnesses that are going to have information about this case that would clear up a lot of the misinformation but their stories their information the court documents none of that stuff is available online to easily locate to clear up some of this misinformation so all you're left with is people kind of running rampant with these speculations so here I am and I'm gonna speculate a little bit here but I'm gonna assume Alicia, the roommate, is going to have been gone for the holidays. She comes home, walks through the house. Again, Ryan is up in ambulatory. He looks terrible, but he's not going to look like what we are going to later find out has happened to him and has happened to Heather. So if you're a roommate returning, you just want to go to your room, you walk through, maybe you see Ryan standing in the kitchen, you see him from the back and nothing looks completely out of place. You see Heather on the couch, she appears to be sleeping and you go up to your room and and that's that you're not walking into what people are eventually going to find out happened it's not going to look like the crime scene for what we're going to find out actually happened is how i should say it so now we have to tackle the main discrepancy in this case and that is the timeline official reports including court documents many media reports and heather's autopsy puts the timeline for the crime as the evening of december 23rd so remember, the police are going to make contact with Ryan and find Heather deceased on the 25th, the evening of Christmas. There is going to be a lot of reports out there that state the crime itself occurred on the evening of the 23rd. So this is roughly 48 hours after the crime, according to a lot of different reports. 
However, online critics, Heather's obituary, and some media outlets state the crime occurred on December 25th. So normally, other than suspect alibis, the timeline for the actual crime isn't extremely important. But as we'll get to, it makes a big difference in this case. But more on that later. But I just want to make sure you guys understand, these are the two very different timelines. This crime either occurred on the evening of December 23rd or the evening of December 24th. There's really no other potential timeline out there. So we go back to where police have made contact with Ryan. Again, looks like he's been involved in a fight. Heather's found deceased on the couch. Roommate saying she doesn't know what happened. She had just got home, walked to her room, and hadn't seen, heard anything out of the ordinary. So Ryan's checked on by officers, and he's asked several questions, but investigators and officers are frustrated by his apparent inability to answer the questions, and they leave him alone for extended period of time while he's in the back of a squad car for anywhere between four to six hours. Now, this is not normal police procedure. At least, this is not how our department would have done things. If we had a guy who we believe to be involved in a homicide, he is not sitting in the back of a squad car for four to six hours. At the point that we believe we have, or in this case, know that we have a homicide because we found a homicide victim in the house, the main suspect, who oftentimes is the significant other, is going to a police station almost immediately. There's going to be a search warrant for his clothing, for us to take photos of him, to take DNA swabs, all that kind of stuff is going to be going on as he's brought back to a secure facility back at the police department. He is not going to be sitting in the back of a squad car for four to six hours. It just doesn't do any good. It's just, you're when you're writing the search warrant for the house, you're going to need information from your suspect in regards to, to potentially a weapon that was used, all that kind of stuff, what you're looking for in that house, and you're going to get that through an interview and interrogation of your suspect. It Having him there in the back of the squad car, again, isn't going to do much, and I honestly think it further delayed what we're eventually going to find out happened here. Now, eventually, Ryan was brought back to the police station to be interviewed by a detective. This interview was recorded and can be found on YouTube and several other internet sources and remains a great point of frustration and anger for many. The entire interview was said to be between one to two hours, depending on the source. And during the interview, the detective asked many standard questions about what happened between Ryan and Heather, either through suggestion, because the pre-interview conversations between various law enforcement officers and Ryan were not recorded, or confusion, Ryan admits that Heather hit him at some point. And what I say here is we, in law enforcement, have made huge strides in documenting investigations as body cams, squad cams, everything have become more required for the job. Everything from initial contact to a suspect to their interrogation, most times in today's world, is recorded from beginning to end. So when a suspect finally gets to the interrogation and they offer certain things up, such as Heather and him were in a fight or whatever it might be, you can go back all the way from the very second that officers made contact with Ryan to the time he's sitting in the squad car to the time he's in this interview room. If nobody in 
in law enforcement have ever mentioned that to him, then you're getting some pretty, I guess, believable intel from Ryan about some type of a domestic disturbance between them. But as this is 2006 and we don't have body cams and squad cameras, we can only assume what was said based on police reports between various different officers on that scene and Ryan. And all it takes is one officer or one investigator to come up to Ryan and be like, I think you were in a fight with your girlfriend. And that muddies all of the, the information gained further down the line. So again, we have Ryan saying some stuff, whether that's stuff that's been suggested to him, told to him, whatever it might be. We don't know at this point, but investigators have this tunnel vision. They believe they have a domestic assault that ended in Heather Kwan's murder, and they have the suspect in custody who is Ryan. However, Ryan's gonna complain about being in pain and being tired throughout the interview, and even it states at one point that he thinks he was shot in the head. And the detective simply tells him if he had been shot in the head, he wouldn't be alive and talking. But as time passes, the detective learned more about Ryan's injuries, as Ryan told him that two men, who he named a father and son duo, came into the house and shot Heather and him with bows and arrows. The detective looked took a closer look at Ryan's face and realized with horror that Ryan had several entrance and exit wounds on his face and that Ryan had been telling the truth. He had been shot in the head and he was alive and talking afterwards. Ryan was rushed to the hospital and doctors determined Ryan had been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber gun and one of the bullets had entered by his nose, hit his skull, traveled upwards and exited his sinus area. The impact of this bullet had caused his skull to fracture and send shards into his brain. The second bullet struck above his ear and ricocheted off his skull and exited. The combination of the initial damage, furthered by infection that had set in, gave Ryan the fight of his life and he spent 35 days in the hospital. Even when he was in the clear, he struggled with severe brain damage to include issues with memory loss, confusion, and difficulty performing simple tasks. So let's go back to that timeline controversy. The official record states that Ryan and Heather were shot on December 23rd and Ryan walked around the house with severe brain damage for two days, almost in a zombie-like state, and he believed that Heather was just sleeping the entire time. Ryan's parents, some doctors, and many online commentators believe Ryan and Heather were shot on the evening of December 25th and that Phoenix PD altered the timeline so that the six plus hours that Ryan was denied care for his wounds didn't look as bad because there would have been 48 plus hours of no medical care before the police even had contact with Ryan if the crime occurred on the evening of the 23rd. Now what I'm going to say is going to be controversial, but I could not find any proof that the shooting occurred on the 25th, and what limited evidence I have seems to indicate the shooting did occur on the 23rd. This is because Ryan's parents stated that Ryan was at their house to help with a home improvement project on the 23rd, and after he left their house, they did not hear from him again. While this doesn't prove one day versus the other, It seems to me that if they had heard from him on the 24th or during the day of the 25th, that this would have been a major point of contention against the timeline of the 23rd. And the wife and mother of the suspect father-son duo stated that the two men left the house on the 23rd and then returned that evening with the father stating he messed up and killed two people and he needed to get all the bullets out of the house and then fled for California. And the autopsy report for Heather Kwan states that she died on the evening of the 23rd. 
The roommate that came home did not make any mention in any public forum or news media of seeing Heather alive on the 24th or 25th, and given the holiday, it's likely she was away with family and not present. However, all that being said, I do remain open to the idea that the crime occurred on the 25th. There was a doctor who stated he did not believe Ryan's injuries could be over 50 hours old, and the suspect's wife and mother could have lied about the date. But for now, it seems the majority of information out there points to a December 23rd timeline. And this is where we get really into the weeds of conspiracy theories. There are so many in, around this case about how the police doctored this timeline in order to make it fit a narrative where they would be less responsible for not providing care to Ryan. What I say to those that believe this wholeheartedly is... A conspiracy involving one person is pretty easy. If one person had the power to change the entire narrative about this case and it only took that one person to do it, I could definitely see that being part of this. But because you have a recorded audio statement of the suspect's wife and mother saying that they left on the 23rd, you've got a medical examiner who has no involvement in the actual failure to provide medical care to to Ryan, stating that he believes Heather was killed on the 23rd, and you don't have anybody coming forward to say that they spoke with Ryan or Heather on the 24th or 25th, I think the idea that there's this massive conspiracy changing the date to the 23rd doesn't really hold a lot of weight and again that's just me looking at the overall evidence of the case and I will talk later actually very soon here about how in reality it doesn't matter I I still think what was done by the police department was completely wrong here I just don't like the idea of of people twisting things to fit a narrative that doesn't really need to be stated to a certain degree I don't think it matters the timeline and again we'll talk about that very shortly so I, I won't go too far down that road here but what I'm trying to say is in every bit of research that I did I couldn't find anything other than just open speculation that the date was changed to to benefit the Phoenix PD again I don't see a medical examiner a doctor risking their license to lie about an autopsy to protect the Phoenix PD Again, maybe I'm just being naive about this, and I'm sure people will tell me I am, but conspiracies usually require everybody in the conspiracy to have a dog in the fight, to have a reason to lie, a reason to change things. And we're looking at, yes, in the case of the detective who failed to provide medical care, if he can create more time in the timeline, yes, that benefits him. But how does that benefit the medical examiner? How does that benefit the suspect's wife, the suspect's mother, with her saying the wrong date? And, and again, how do we not have a single person in Ryan or Heather's life able to tell us that they communicated with Ryan or Heather during the day or evening of the 24th or all day on the 25th? So to me, everything points towards that this crime occurred on the 23rd. And I think some of this is actually going to be backed up by the fact that 
if Ryan's injuries were so devastating and that they had occurred on the 25th, then during those six hours, he probably would have rapidly declined. But I think he had reached a the zombie-like state at some point after he was shot on the 23rd and was kind of maintaining this horrible suffering situation for the two days prior to his discovery and for the six hours of his discovery. So again, I didn't want to focus this much on the timeline, but this was one of the most frustrating cases because you will literally read in some articles how the police changed the timeline, so they're going to go with the fact this crime occurred on the 25th, even though it flies in the face of the medical examiner. It flies in the face of the wife of the suspect who does become uncooperative eventually with the police so it's not like she's buddy buddy with the the police officers she never changes her story on the date she just becomes uncooperative so we'll leave that timeline thing to rest here i'm going to go with the fact the crimes occurred on the 23rd it does not mean that what the police did was not terrible i'm not siding with the, the 23rd timeline because i think that makes things less culpable for the police i'm just basing that off the facts okay so let's get back to the story in reality i don't believe that timeline makes a huge difference as i mentioned what happened to ryan is inexcusable no matter the short or long timeline the crime against him and his treatment by law enforcement was reprehensible and while i understand the belief that faster care would have improved his quality of life in the grand scheme of things i think it's time that we focus on the crime and what went wrong other than worrying about this timeline And before I lay into the Phoenix PD for their handling of the case, I will say one thing. 22 caliber wounds are often hard to locate. When people envision gunshot wounds, they picture gaping holes in people's faces that could only come from something like a bullet. But 22 caliber wounds, especially in areas that are swollen, are often small enough to go unnoticed. Put that together with the natural belief that someone shot twice in the head shouldn't be talking to you, and I can see from an overall standpoint that these injuries could have been missed by the police. However, that does not excuse them from not doing a more thorough medical evaluation. All police officers in Minnesota are required to be certified first responders at some point before getting their license, and in many cases, officers such as myself had a background to include an EMT certification. Ryan's behavior was rife with classic head and brain trauma indicators to include confusion, tiredness, and memory loss, and yet he was badgered for hours and left unattended in a squad car. If the December 23rd timeline is correct, Ryan could have spent a lot of that time sleeping, as the body naturally tries to limit function to prevent swelling and further damage. Once Ryan was taken into custody, his brain was forced to function at a much higher level than it had been, and any damage from swelling, bleeding, or infection was increased significantly. Now I'm going to couple that with the fact that I have seen many people with injuries from fists, hands, and other body parts to the face to include several smaller women who have been hit by their much larger and stronger significant others. Only in the most severe cases did I see injuries like Ryan was showing, and I would not have expected to see the amount of bruising and swelling on Ryan from strikes that Heather landed on him. And so I say this because this is what we talk about with tunnel vision. This is investigators and officers coming to a predetermined conclusion about what happened at this residence and ignoring telltale signs that something else happened. As I've seen the pictures, I've watched the 
the interrogation video, I'm looking at a guy, like I said, that looks like he was on the end, on the losing side of a boxing match or an MMA fight. The, the amount of damage that's done to his face, and now granted again, it's going to be swollen. You're not going to see the gunshot hole because this 22 caliber hole is very small and it's kind of closed up by the swelling and the bruising. But this guy is going to look like he got the absolute crap beat out of him. And you're going to look at Heather and she's not a very big person. So you either have to assume that he let her pummel him and then you're also likely going to be looking at her hands and knuckles and that kind of stuff and you're not going to see broken knuckles damage to their her hands that would indicate that he could have struck now could she have hit him with an object maybe i mean something like a baseball bat would do the damage that you're seeing in ryan's face but he's not telling you that she hit him with a baseball bat and if you if you're thinking that he's using the domestic violence the the, the battered spouse defense for the reason that he shot Heather, you would think if she was hitting him with some type of a blunt object that that would be the first thing that he would be claiming if this is truly self-defense. But he is so confused. He doesn't know how old Heather is. He thinks she's 16 or 17. He doesn't know where he's at. I mean, he is showing all the telltale signs of somebody with severe head trauma and they're treating him as if he's a guy that got slapped and scratched by his girlfriend and then he shot her in the head and that's again it's not matching up to what we're seeing so this case is a stark reminder of the dangers of tunnel vision by law enforcement and the damage to the public's trust and an investigation when a detective predetermines the solution to a case without considering all avenues and sadly this case involved the pain and suffering of a victim who was unfairly treated as a suspect as well all right i think that about covers the main controversies in this case it is best summed up as no matter the timeline, the detective on this case messed up. If you watch the interrogation video, you can't help but get sick to your stomach knowing how much Ryan was suffering and yet his needs went unanswered. With Ryan in the hospital and being treated, the search for Heather's killers and Ryan's attackers began. Ryan named two suspects during his interrogation, Richie Carver and his father Larry. Now, I did say that the controversies are over, but no, even here, the relationship between Ryan and Richie is also hotly contested online. Just like the timeline, there are two very different stories depending on the source. So there are many sources out there that say that Ryan and Richie were roommates, and Ryan kicked Richie out after he caught him making advancements towards Heather. While this is the more dramatic and somewhat Shakespearean story, the other story makes a little more sense. The other sources say that while Ryan and Richie knew each other, they were never actually roommates. Richie lived with a guy named Eric, who had been renting the house before Ryan moved in. Eric and Richie got into an argument that may or may not have included a handgun and someone getting pistol whipped. After Eric kicked Richie out, Ryan moved in, and there are rumors that Ryan and Richie may have seen each other at parties before, but there is no reported history between them according to some sources. And after a month or so, Eric moved out, and Heather moved in, and eventually Alicia moved in as well. So again, we can't even get the actual details of, of the suspect-victim relationship in this case, because everything is just, there's so much misinformation out there about it. 
Now, according to the investigation, and regardless of the date, Richie and his father, Larry, decided to break into Richie's old place. Apparently, Richie had been caught sneaking around the backyard the previous week, and after being caught by Ryan, he had said he was looking for something he had left behind while moving out. And depending on the source, on the evening of the attack and murder, Larry approached the back door of the residence. Some sources say he knocked, and others say Ryan heard the men and opened the door to see what the noise was. Ryan apparently tried to close the door, and Larry struck, or stuck the handgun through the opening and pulled the trigger, shooting Ryan in the face. Ryan fell to the ground, and Larry fired another shot into Ryan's head. The duo then located Heather, who was on the couch, and Larry shot her in the head, killing her instantly. And then the two men searched the place for valuables. Some sources say the men removed electronics and other valuables and a gun. Other sources say the men fled after shooting Ryan and Heather. So here again even the motive the stuff leading up to the crime is is debated online it's contested and and this is the danger i think when a case starts to slip into conspiracy theory and lack of factual basis people start jumping to conclusions about things is it doesn't just affect one part of the story it affects multiple parts of the story there's really no reason that we don't know exactly what happened and there's really no reason we don't know the exact date that all this stuff happened it's just more proof as to why this this story was so difficult now ultimately there was talk that and it did make sense there was maybe more of a relationship between ryan and richie than was originally reported that there might be the middle the truth might be somewhere in the middle of these stories that there may have been some confrontations between Ryan and Richie. They may have actually even been roommates, and the, the original source might have been correct, and that Richie and Larry went over to the house uh, in kind of a combination of revenge for what had happened to Richie, as well as an attempt to get some stuff. And I mean, this does happen. You do have either current roommates or roommates of a former roommate, I guess, either way, that will show up, that will be upset about getting kicked out of a place. We had it many, many different times when you have two roommates decide they're going to buy, say, a TV together. They're each going to pitch in a few hundred dollars and get this big screen TV. Well, then when one roommate gets kicked out, who does the TV belong to? They both paid for half the TV, short of cutting the TV in half and, and each person getting half of a non-working TV. How do you settle it? Now, some people are civil and they'll settle it by one of the parties paying the other roughly half of the cost of the TV and then they get to keep the entire thing. Other people are not so civil and some people will remove the TV while they're moving out, while their roommate's at work, and then it becomes a civil issue that can go to small claims court. And sometimes it's more than a TV. Sometimes it's TV and kitchen stuff and appliances and other things, decorations, whatnot, throughout the apartment that are all contested. So this kind of stuff does happen, but it usually does not arise to a level that somebody's coming over to the house with a gun. Now, there may be some truth to the fact that Richie may have been pistol whipped by somebody, and whether it was Eric, whether it was a different roommate, or whether it was Ryan, that may have led to Larry bringing the gun along. However, it's unknown whether or not 
this murder was part of the whole process based on Larry coming back and telling his wife that he messed up and killed two people I don't think it was it may have just been something where emotions were so hot the father and son talked themselves into a frenzy before they arrived at the apartment and when Ryan tried to slam the door shut Larry overreacted and shot Ryan and, and everything went south from there but again th that's why this case was so difficult there's just every single part of the story is contested and even parts that don't even matter are contested just to make telling the story more difficult but again somewhere in that whole mess of a story of the varying accounts of the the timeline the everything there is the true story somewhere in all of that ultimately both brian carver and larry carver were apprehended and put on trial Ryan was found guilty of first-degree burglary, aggravated assault, and second-degree murder. Larry was initially arrested, and then police and prosecutors panicked when Larry's wife, who had originally provided them with a statement regarding her husband's behavior on the evening of December 23rd, later claimed she wouldn't testify against her husband per her right under spousal privilege. So this was interesting because, yes, spousal privilege exists, and it basically says that you can't force the spouse of somebody to testify against their significant other on the stand but in this case this woman Cheryl she had provided voluntarily a statement to the police after the murder of Heather Kwan stating that her husband had gone over to the house and had shot these two people he believed he killed both of them and then he fled to California well since it takes a while for things to go to trial, by the time things are going to trial, these two are back together and have repaired their past. And so now she doesn't want to cooperate anymore. And she tried to claim, well, you can't use that stuff I told you because that's spousal privilege. If you play it in court and basically the defense then has the right to cross-examine the person for evidence but she can decline it gets into this big legal mess and ultimately heather's family would approach the arizona legislature and through their hard work and determination heather's law a law that retracts spousal privilege when the spouse voluntarily provides information was passed this allowed prosecutors to use cheryl's initial statement during larry's trial and larry's was convicted of first degree murder attempted first degree murder first degree burglary and aggravated assault so Richie was sentenced to life in prison, and his father Larry was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Ryan did survive his terrible ordeal, but suffered from memory loss, pain, confusion, and could no longer function on his own in society. Sadly, he passed away on January 20th, 2016, after suffering a head injury during a seizure related to his assault. He was only 27 years old. And while this story is often used to highlight mistakes made by law enforcement, and in this case rightfully so, the true story in this is about the tragic loss of life for Heather Kwan and a life cut short for Ryan Waller. So again, I appreciate you guys sitting through. I didn't quite know how to properly present on this case. I thought about just going with building a single timeline, a single story based on the evidence out there but I knew as soon as I put that out there and people listen to it I would be getting inundated with you know that's not right and you know this isn't right and you know most people believe this or believe that or whatever it might be so I figure I'll do my best to present everything all the different angles all the different 
discrepancies in the story. And then at the end of the day, I want everybody to realize that a lot of that stuff doesn't matter. I mean, it does, the truth does matter, I get that. But at the end of the day, we can say the police messed up. They should have recognized Ryan's injuries a lot earlier and got him medical care a lot faster. And that being said, the police did not shoot Ryan Waller. Two monsters of men, Richie and Larry Carver, were responsible for the deaths of Heather Kwan and eventually the death of Ryan Waller. And and that tragedy, the loss of those lives, should be what this story is about not so much about all the the misinformation that's out there so again appreciate you guys listening to me kind of babble my way through this the story um pretty much any story i cover after this is going to be a lot easier for me to get through so thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at trueblucrimeproductions at gmail.com you can also find me at trueblucrimeproductions on facebook and support me via patreon at trueblucrimeproductions so that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye